0: What up all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there thank you for joining me for episode 210 of misfits and rejects in today's episode i spoke with jared and gaza from jared and com and the noetic podcast now jared is an activist to the core he's been doing a lot of work in africa with human trafficking and just been in the activism game for a long time starting out with his native american work in his early career and as i said working his way up into the bowels of some of the darkest parts of the human psyche and world's underbellies. Jared is just an overall very interesting dude, very switched on, and by my definition, a misfit and reject to the core. Somebody who is pioneering and trailblazing, trying to lay the foundation for something in the future that is worth leaving behind. I have no doubt that you're going to enjoy his story and possibly find something in his story that drives you to take that first step down a path of change. If you're a first-time listener, please hit subscribe. If you're a return listener, you like this episode, Jared and I sure would appreciate if you shared it with a friend. Rating Misfits and Rejects was five stars. Writing a comment really helps us get found within the algorithms that be people searching for this type of podcast. That's what the algorithm likes. It likes to see people commenting, people rating, people sharing. So please do us a solid and do one, if not all three of those things. And if you really like Misfits and Rejects and want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do that in one of two ways. You can head over to MisfitsandRejects.com backslash shop and pick up a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt. Or you can head over to patreon.com backslash Misfits and Rejects and leave a monthly donation. Whatever you want, nothing is expected. All is appreciated. Whether it's $1 a month, $5 a month, again, it's all appreciated. Nothing is expected. We appreciate you just for coming here week in, week out, listening to these stories, hopefully getting super inspired and starting to make those changes in your life that you know need to be made and start living that life that you've always dreamed of. So with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Jared and Gaza from jaredandgaza.com or the Noetic Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't
1: fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes.
0: I quit the limiting stories really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Jared Angaza from JaredAngaza.com, the Noetic Podcast, and he's an identity architect. Jared, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, man a pleasure, dude. You were recommended by a good friend, Heath. And instantly when he told me a little bit about your story, I got very intrigued, primarily because of your time spent in Africa. I think that's what really caught my attention. But just a few other conversations we had about you. I mean, you have done a lot of interesting things throughout your life and seem to be somebody who's driven in a way that I think a lot of us aren't touched by at such an early age. From what little I know about you, I mean, you are an activist to the core I mean, you have very strong beliefs about the world and how obviously people need to be treated, and you're going to go out there and make sure that that happens. And I'd love to hear more about this because I know not only from just what little I know about you and the stuff you've accomplished, but recently a lot of stuff's been shifting in your life. So I don't really have a direction for this conversation. I just want to get to know you, brother. So again, welcome and Maybe if you could just start with like the most recent events, like you've had some big stuff going on, like bring me up to speed since I don't know what's going on in your life.
1: Fair enough. All right. Well, um, I've had, yeah, quite a journey. It has been, uh, there's been a few fairly significant shifts recently. Um, I, I guess I, uh. Where do I start here? I, I lived in Africa for ten years, so that's a big chunk of my life um, and a big chunk of my identity. Consequently, uh, as you might imagine, leaving there, uh, what five or no man? It's been six or seven years ago now. I guess my my twins are five now, and we uh, we moved out of there about a year or so before they uh, they were born. So um, that that transition. Coming back from that world, that life, into the American life, um, man, did that 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 was maybe the harder thing that I did than dropping into the jungles of Rwanda and Congo and doing all the other work that I did. That seemed very natural to me, and we can get into that. But um, this this last you know five six years or so in in the states has been quite a journey for me um, to. <laughs> to, you know, to to live a life that is a little, uh, little more domesticated, I guess, is is one one side of that. I, I study and, and teach a lot of the Toltec principles, and we talk a lot about the uh, society's tendency to, to domesticate us, uh, and how that affects us. And I've been very tuned into that as I've been living here in the states, and uh, that, uh, you know, I've got four kids. I uh, three, three still in the home, uh, two twins at five years old and an eight-year-old daughter. Um, and then I have an older 25-year-old that also has a daughter, which makes me a grandpa. <laughs> um, so I'm a- actually a grandfather as well, oddly. Um, but I, in, in looking at all of those relationships and all of that, uh, it's made me really tune in to, you know, how am I domesticating my kids? <laughs> you know, what kind of environment are they growing up in? Uh, when I first uh, landed in Rwanda, I ended up adopting a, a street kid, um, and uh, Francois. He's now 25, and he's the one with the two-year-old daughter. Um, it was the first time in my life I realized someone else was watching me and was going to emulate the things that I did and probably disregard most of the things I said. <laughs> um, so that was Parenting 101 for me, and I started – yeah, I just um, – it changed the way I – I view my life and my response to life. And I I wanted to live in a way that was exemplifying the principles that I believe in about being love and all that. And, um, so yeah, that, that journey, I guess I'm just giving you kind of a, a big snapshot here, but the, the, the journey of becoming a father to Francois in Rwanda, the journey of then coming back to the United States and with my other children, um, and, and having this this very stark difference in the jungle life versus the domesticated American life, um, and then thinking about how that impacts my children, how it impacts my mind, and where I'm at, um, that's been a pretty big journey. And then what happened at held am my 42, I guess, uh, over the last like, I guess it's been about three years. I started on some uh, pretty serious psychedelic journeys uh, to to kind of. Uh, to get in a space where I could address the things that I just talked about more, more clearly to, to have a little more clear vision in that. And so I've had the last three years has been pretty interesting with those, with those psychedelic journeys. And I've gone in pretty deep. Um, the, the clarity that I've gotten from that has been a game changer and, and certainly represents a large part of the maturation of my journey, I guess, in sort of hyper speed over the last three years. Um, my kids know that, you know, that I go and I go into ceremony and I, and they, they would say that that is going to see the wisdom keepers. Um, and they know that when I go three days in Mexico to have a journey that I'm going to come back and, and for me, it's going to be 10 years, <laughs> about 10 years off of my life <laughs> from doing that work, um, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I know I'm kind of all over the place there, but there's, that's a little bit of the journey and like where my head's at. Like I'm, I'm constantly thinking about my kids that that's a huge motivator. I think that of all the philanthropic things and altruistic things that I do, my greatest contribution to the world is certainly to raise little vessels of love, um, I'm a big uh, advocate of, of going to the core of things and the, the root of things rather than addressing the symptoms. And I think uh, if we address the way we see the world and the way we respond to the world, that's, that's my go-to rather than addressing all the, the things that happen as a result of not doing that. So.
0: Well done, dude. That was a very vague way to start the podcast. You did a good job and led me to my next question very beautifully the repatriation comes up a lot, especially, you know, for all the misfits and rejects out there who are expats and come back to their home countries or, you know, decide the expat life isn't for them and coming back and having that transitional period, which I've gone through many times. This took me many years to figure out uh, a system in which I can do it in a healthy way without just self-medicating with alcohol and really trying to, adjust back to like that domesticated life as you described can you talk about your experience and how you've learned to deal with it because it sounded like it was quite a shock to your system i mean i've never been to africa rwanda congo are both places i'd love to go check out watching like david cho go through the congo and his like documentaries on netflix who's like he's a graffiti artist if you don't know who he is like the congo looks crazy dude like
1: which... I, I can attest to that. Yeah, it's so, it's a bit it's a bit Mad Max. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking.
0: So you having been exposed for ten years, you're gonna see life in a different way, obviously, and you're gonna fundamentally change. And then coming back into a situation like where are you calling in from right now? San Diego. Okay, so you're in California, like I am. I mean, what's that like, dude? I mean, can you just take us through the feelings? the actions you take to deal with those types of feelings. Cause I can imagine the feelings are kind of overwhelming anxiety provoking, and possibly you might've gone through a spat of depression at some point. You tell me,
1: how is it for you? <laughs> that, that's, that's fairly accurate so far. Yeah. I, um, I want to, I want to preface because I've, I've done this before where I forgot. <laughs> um, my experience in Africa, uh, Was heavily influenced obviously by the work that i do and i was a a human rights activist i'm still a human rights activist but i I was i was into uh anti-trafficking um initiatives there, efforts and that was the primary deal in rwanda and then um women's rights i was an activist there i wrote uh i co-wrote a bill on how women are treated in the streets there and i i uh that then passed through parliament and became a law. I did some time for that one. <laughs> There's a lot of people that didn't want that to go down. Um, but I I had this experience where I, I, I was addressing sort of the underbelly of humanity. Uh, it happened to be in R- in Rwanda and Congo and, and Kenya and R- Uganda and so on. Um, it happened to be A lot of people ask me, like, hey, you know, were you going – one of those missionaries going to Africa to save the Africans? And I was like, look, you can look at my track record. I had 15 years of doing the same work in the United States before I went to Africa. I was just doing me (laughs) there. I went there to find me, I think. Um, Looking back, I I think that – I wanted to go live a raw life. I wanted to live in an atmosphere that wasn't so inundated by all the chaos and craziness and – all the other jazz, um, I didn't want the distraction and I, (sighs) yeah, so I had this, I want to be clear that my experience in the nature of my work is not representative of any, everyone else going to Africa. Um, there's so much beauty there. I had so many things that I, I was, uh, just you know, in awe of, and the scenes and the things that made me feel totally, completely alive. And thinking, you know, looking at the night sky from the desert and and you know, between ten, Tanzania and Kenya there in the Mara, it was just ah oh man, I, <laughs> it blew my mind. So there's so much beauty there. I want to be clear about that. Uh, and and I had some of those amazing experiences with humans there, um, expats and locals of of all the different regions and everything. Uh, and it was a really, there was a lot of beauty now on another, (laughs) the other side of that coin, I, I saw some pretty gnarly stuff, um, a lack of humanity in many ways from, from a lot of people. And I was there obviously addressing a lot of that and it was, I, I, you know, I, I was never in the military officially, but and I worked with them over there and, and um, in various capacities. Um, I was the guy on the ground, suffice it to say, for a lot of other organizations and initiatives and things. And I was the guy that knew what was going on in all the gnarly areas um, because I was doing that kind of recon. Um, and, I, and I lived uh, and, and worked and kind of, uh, I, I was always in the in the bowels of the cities and, and whatnot. So I knew what was going on. Um, coming, like the day to day there was interesting. I mean, we had <laughs> the, the whole deal. He had like burner phones and stuff like that because I'm always being tapped and I had all these, um, it was just a very different way of living. Everything, everything was about my work. Um, and, I was on a mission, you know, and I, at one point there were 49 women that I was working with that I'd gotten out of, off the streets and then into other kind of income generation, uh, scenario. We had a ethical fashion label that we had started back then, back before there was one on every corner. That was a long time ago. Um, and that life, man, when I was, uh, the, the, the fashion label thing worked well, you could kind of put that together and get that out there and get things rolling and it looked nice and I could go back to doing some of the more gnarly work without being noticed, Uh, So I did a lot of that, and that became very much a part of my identity. Coming back into the United States, I felt like I came in in an F-16 and like hit the dirt and went like 20 feet in the ground, and I've been trying to pull myself out since. Hence the uh, psychedelic journeys (laughs) I started bringing into the mix to say, "Man, where are you, man? Where'd you go?" I lost a lot of my identity after coming back from being you know basically a benevolent mercenary you know africa guy and um i mean even my look and i had been an mma fighter and i was 200 some pounds i'm 160 now by the way (laughs) i'm like half the dude i used to be um i was a meathead a bit there and i was just kind of viewing myself as a tool for i was a machine you know and that was it and i treated myself like that every day um coming back into the states then it was just like yeah, I mean, I, I definitely went had a lot of PTSD that I've been dealing with since through a lot of therapy in various forms through actual PTSD therapists. Um, I was just with uh, another friend that is a um, therapist for, for vets, uh, for PTSD for veterans. And um, <laughs> I mean, the, the stuff that she covers is the same stuff that I'm going through and, and that I've uh, – um, Anyway, I, I have a, certainly a lot of respect for vets coming in now and then understanding some of the uh, – just being able to, to to very much sympathize with where they've been and, and some of the things they've seen. And I've seen a lot of the same things. I just wasn't on I, – I wasn't enlisted, but I was there with the same guys seeing the same stuff, fighting the same stuff. Um, and now I'm having to find a new kind of rhythm for my life and a new kind of – new ways to get – jazzed, you know, to get, to get my to get pumped up and, and, um, man, it, it was hard for a long time. Uh, it was, it, I felt very alone. I felt very, um, broken. <laughs> um, and I had this moment where I kind of, this was a couple years ago and some of the boys took me on a, on a medicine journey, I took some boomers down in Mexico. And, uh, that, was kind of like kind of kicked my system back in and said, Hey, remember psychedelics? (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God, it's been a long time, but man, it felt good to be back in that space. I feel very (sighs) comfortable in the psychedelic realm, you know, um, with the plants and, and that, uh, I think has been the best therapy I've had since I've been back for sure. And it enabled me to, to surrender, which is not something I was good at as a, as a soldier. Um, it enabled me to recognize that I had never even contemplated the idea of self-love. wasn't a thing. I had deliberately, I discovered this, deliberately tried, this was on a DMT trip, by the way, <laughs> but I had deliberately tried to make myself the type of soldier that didn't need to feel love. I thought that was the best way I could serve because if I had a need, it was going to take away from my ability to serve Catching me at a good moment. I wrote about this last night, <laughs> um, but that's, man, that was a lot of the stuff I, I just came back and I was like, what am I now? Like if I'm not on the, on my mission, then what am I, who am I, what am I committed to cause? These are things I ask my clients, but I had to ask myself. Um, you know, what am I committed to cause now? What does this look like in in the new world for me? (laughs) Um, so yeah, anyway, that, that, that's a kind of another snapshot there, but I suffice it to say had a rough time coming back into the old US of a, I did, it was very reluctant to begin with. There were some reasons we were back. Some of that was to build up some business stuff, which I'm very grateful I've done now, uh, in a much bigger way than what I'd even thought at the time. Um, and I, I may be about to bounce again. we may be looking uh, we, we tried to move to Costa Rica here recently, but got locked down and couldn't get out um, I need to get some passports renewed for renewed for the kiddos so we're waiting on that but um, my time here in the states has been it's interesting. I think that my time back here in the states has done for me what it what going over to another place does for a lot of people <laughs> like to to bring them to alive and, and to help them contemplate things they hadn't contemplated before. Being in the jungles of Africa, doing the work that I was doing, felt very, very, very natural for me. And I recognize there's something maybe unique about that. But um, coming back here and living living the American life uh, has been the greatest challenge for me. And uh, I think that journey and sticking with it and then going in and doing the work of the psychedelics and the integration and all that, that that's that been my, my wake-up journey. Um, so it's a bit... On the flip uh, flip side, I guess from what what a lot of people experience, but I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for my time here and, and the things I've had to go through that that life has kind of pushed me into. Um, we had a co living situation with another family that was super intense and and difficult and beautiful and wonderful. Uh, just uh, that was just the last couple of years, and and that was another kind of Rattling of the of the soul that kind of got me um, that woke me up to some things and um, yeah so th- there's there's been um, it's been an, a, a bit of a tumultuous journey for sure but one that has been extremely fruitful for me and um, figuring out who I am
0: yeah I'd like to dive more into that because to drive to be driven to go do what you did in Africa and as you articulate you know looking more or less for yourself trying to find yourself and the therapy that you're doing now with the, the plant medicines and your therapist, what has come up from your past that you have discovered that might've been a motivating factor to take those steps to Africa towards Africa?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I have you know, I toured for a long time, you know, raising money for projects and, and talking about things I believe in from the stage. Um, In that, there's a story about me, you know, being a bit of an MTV kid somehow, which is weird because we didn't have TV much when I was a kid, but I remember MTV somehow. And that gave me a little window into the, the, like when, um, the, we are the world, you know, came out and there was, there was the video for that, but there was also at the time there was like a PSA thing where they talked about what was going on. And I think in Ethiopia was the focus at the time, um, and as a kid, I was eight years old, I think, and, and I thought, "Oh my God, what the what the hell's going on? How are people living like this when I'm living here in you know nice suburbia, Nashville or whatever?" Um, that rocked me at an early age. Now, why I don't particularly know. Like it wasn't nece- like I don't come from a family of activists or anything. I do come from a family of authors and entrepreneurs. They're all podcasters. They're all published uh, authors. They're all you know in this discussion, but not necessarily activist-driven. Uh, so for whatever reason, man, I, I, a lot of it was innate, I guess. It just was in me. Uh, I'm grateful that my parents, in in whatever way they did, apparently uh, fostered an environment there that was conducive for me becoming an activist. So I'm grateful for whatever that looked like. <laughs> I can't necessarily pin what it was, but um, they supported me, I guess, in, in that for the most part, there was certainly some reluctance. I mean, I, I was with the American Indian movement early on at like 17, and that was pretty rage against the machine ish. You know, that <laughs> was during, it was also during their prime. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I was certainly a product of the rage against the machine uh, movement. And I was raging. John Trudell was like the. MLK equivalent in the American Indian movement, he quite an orator, uh, so much though that he was on the FBI most wanted list and they, the FBI did some really horrific things to his family and so on, but I won't get into that now. But, uh, I, I was blown away by this man and I was, uh, following him. So I, I know that there was influence from, you know, raising his machine machine, Zach Delaroca and Tom Morello, those guys. And that was going into my head, uh, at an early age. I mean, I was in my teens at that point, but I um, and some of these guys like John Trudell, I still watch his videos to learn from his way of thinking. And a lot of that isn't based in Lakota beliefs. And that's where a lot of mine come from, my faith. Um, So I had some inspirations. Uh, That's part of why I'm such an advocate now for pop culture, being involved with um, politics and, and activism. I'm a big believer that we've always been led by celebrity humanity has, whether it's Caesar or Jesus or whatever Michael Jackson doesn't matter we're We're influenced by these people, and I think well, as an activist and a strategist, it seems ridiculous to just throw away that tool i should I should wield it well um, and I, and if some if Brad Pitt wants to help some refugee camp rather than ridicule him for it I'd be better off to Maybe help advise him how to do it well, you know, or to support him in that and mm-hmm. I've done a lot of that over the years with celebrities and so on um, And seen great fruit from that I I could name a list of big ones, but suffice it to say it, it's it's uh, I'm grateful that that's happened. I, I can look at one of those guys and say well You can do more in an afternoon than I could do in five years. Let's do that. Why not? <laughs> so I was very influenced by that and I think about how many other people must be as well um, so I, it's, I mean, there wasn't some angel that came from the heavens, I guess, and, and descended upon me and gave me the, the mission or anything. But uh, I, there was definitely something innate. My family fostered an environment that apparently pulled that out, you know, for me. I appreciate that. And then there was a lot of just pop culture stuff that I tuned into. And it was, you know, for whatever reason, I tuned into that rather than the candy crap that was going around um I wanted a purpose. I wanted something meaningful. I wanted to... That was where I found fulfillment is when I could do that. And I did a lot of on-the-ground stuff in Nashville. Uh, You know, soup kitchen and and volunteer stuff and whatever. A lot of protests, things like that. Um, My family jokes saying that I came out of the womb with a protest sign. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've done a lot of that. And now my kids go to the protests with me as well. Um, So, yeah, I, I... I had a lot of early influence, but by the time I was out of the house at 18 or so, I was hardcore, cool, full steam activist in it, and a couple of racial equality initiatives and so on. So it was early on, and uh, and it's obviously been the continuing thread.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, it's cool. And just for the the audience who's listening, who have similar forces driving them, have this sim- have a similar calling, which it sounds like you did. Can you just give them a few things that they could do to take those steps and put themselves in a situation like you went and sought out in Africa? I know there's adventurous people listening who – this sounds very appealing to them, going to Africa and making a difference. Like, How, how do you get into that and what, what kind of steps do they need to take to, to go be, include themselves
1: in that fight? Thanks for asking that. That's a good question. Um, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, how did you do that, you know, you, you know, the money thing? Like, oh, you must have had money to do this and that and whatever. I had nothing, nothing. I had (laughs) like I I literally had like a backpack with some stuff in it, and I went to Rwanda on a half volunteer, kind of half paid, like they paid my ticket um, project, and I was like, "Get me over there, and I'll figure it out." Um, And that was insane, by the way, (laughs) in terms of how that played out, but it did, and I. I found opportunities. I volunteered like crazy. I now have you know situations where I'm in organizations where I have a whole fleet of volunteers. And I, I just talked to them the other day, and I was like, I did exactly what you're doing. I volunteered for everybody. I interned for everybody. I worked for free so much. Um, and that got me into places, I mean, ultimately, where I am now with all the other things eventually. But I I got into projects largely because people... I think make the assumption that they're not qualified. They're not going to get a yes. Why would some big organization like USAID or something like that? Let me in as anything. I have no experience. I have no whatever. Um, And I just, I don't know that I even really necessarily believed that they would say yes. I just wanted it so bad that I did it. I I said, well, I'll take a chance. I "I don't, I don't have the job now. (laughs) And if I ask them and they say, no, I still don't have the job. It's, I mean, what's worse could happen. So I started doing that and I, I got into some pretty spectacular stuff. I ended up – I also represented lawyers without borders when I was there. They needed somebody on the ground. It's a long story. Suffice it to say that I did that for a long time, and it was really educational, I'll say the least. Um, and I – I mean if to anybody going over wherever, especially Africa, but it, wherever you're going, if it's some developing country, um, every time I've gone into a new country – I have studied and studied and studied and studied as much as I possibly could about that country, including talking to people from there or other expats that have had long term experiences there and so on. And I got as much information as I possibly could. And then I'll give you my formula, I guess, (laughs) take as much information as you can, learn the culture, be respectful enough to do that, you know, to come in with some knowledge of at least as much as you can of what's going on uh, and to be sensitive to that when you come in uh, and recognize you're not coming to someone's country, they're coming in, you're coming into their culture, their way of being. Um, so to do, to do that is I, I think very important. And then right before you get there, then take all of your expectations about what you think is going to happen and throw them away. <laughs> um, Cause the, the, the education is to help you be, uh, flow into their culture better, not for you to know everything that's going to happen so I think that's an important one. And then to just keep leaping and jumping into, I mean, I just kept leaping into things, uh, over and over and over. And every one of those just led me into the next thing that I ended up doing. And someone would ask me, how did you get to this spot? You know, at the United Nations or whatever. I was like, I don't know. I just kept saying, yes. How did you get an adopted, you know, how did you adopt a Rwandan kid? No idea. I just kept saying, yes, it just happened. And now I have a kid (laughs) and a grandkid for that matter. Um, but I just kept saying yes because I – well, maybe I'll insert my statement of faith here. Simple. <laughs> I, I believe in a benevolent universe. All things work to a good. I believe everything belongs, most especially when I can't understand it. <laughs> and uh, I believe that our, our purpose here is to choose love over anything that might stand against it. So when I take that and run it over everything um, – It's kind of a formula for just jumping into things all the time and saying I'm gonna do this and it'd be amazing Um, And I've learned so much because of that I've been tossed into the churn of the the washing machine of life so many times and gotten beaten around and for me that works and and it brings me out the other side with a lot of gratitude and uh, I Think I hope uh, a lot more understanding and so on so I think when you're going into another place like that being mindful of the culture and respectful of the culture um, and then really, 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 really open and, and willing to listen a lot. That's certainly my formula.
0: No, it's a good formula. Thank you for sharing it. With just to give the audience a little perspective because it has come up in past episodes, i like to give them an idea of like the kind of money you did land with. Like my safety net whenever I leave the country, I want to have like two grand in the bank. And I know I can go for a long period of time in places. I've never been to Africa, but I I, I can imagine I can go for a long period of time there with two grand. Get get by. How much did you land with?
1: In Rwanda, I landed with a six-month job to build a mountain bike race for pros to come in from all over the world. And and I wanted to tell a better story there than the genocide, for instance. Say, let's bring some positive light. So I did that. I'm a former racer and so on. So anyway, um, I think I have two grand. Exactly, and I had a stipend for two grand, or uh, it was basically a stipend. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily a salary, but I had two grand a month. Now I had to pay rent, I had to pay all my transport, I had to pay all my food, all that stuff. Um, And within a few months, I was supporting a kid (laughs) um, and my housemate half the time. Uh, So that that was uh, that was the beginning in Rwanda, and that was how I kicked off that five years. Not only had that job for it ended up eight months, and then the rest of the time was me doing my own projects. And I had to generate income from that, which was laughable uh, for a long time. Um, and then in, I got married and went. we dropped into Mombasa. I had a gig in Rwanda that paid me $2,600, I think. And that paid for our tickets. We went, flew into Rwanda. That paid for our tickets and all that. And I had another gig while I was there working with the government, I think, uh, Ministry of Commerce or something like that. And it got me another couple grand. We lived off that. By the time we left and went from, from that two month or whatever, one month or whatever it was in Rwanda to move to Mombasa to be like our home for our, you know, to raise family and do all that, I had $700 in my pocket. Um, a guy that I had been connected with and didn't know at the time, who's now like my brother, uh, Phil, Irish dude in Mombasa, took a hundred bucks of mine to change it on the street. And then the dude stole it from him. (laughs) Uh, so the next day after landing there, I had $600 in my pocket. I did not tell my wife at the time. I was like, that's not going to help anybody if I say that. (laughs) So I just kept it to myself, you know, and we lived there for five more years. No one knew, but, um, I, I, everything just built upon that. But yeah, I remember that first month when i was getting down to like a hundred bucks and i was like i don't know what the hell we're gonna do uh, and frankly i don't even remember what exactly happened at that point which is another testament to like don't worry about it at the time so much because you'll get to a point where you don't even remember what happened <laughs> yeah living uh, the moment can do that for you just kind of are living in the moment and the
0: memories I, yeah i, I find I, I don't have memories of periods of time where i'm present like mm. i can look back in my past where i know i was very present Primarily travel wise, because you are very present when you travel to new places, and just yeah. I don't remember any of it because just that's where I was in the moment. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, with you starting a family in Africa and adopting your son, like how does that play out? I mean, you it sounds like you adopted your son prior to getting married, or even finding your wife, or we didn't even
1: know each other. Yeah, um, yeah, we came as a package deal, Francois and I which is a rocky way to start out a marriage. Trust me. Um, it was tough. And, you know, I had a street kid that I picked up when he was 10 years old. <clears throat> he had, I study human behavior, man. I, <laughs> I I, understand how much programming happens in our minds um, from, uh, you know, zero to seven is the, the primary programming stage there. And, so I had that to deal with. I knew that kind of going in, but certainly learned a lot more as I was there with him. You know, there there's um, some misogyny in the culture there uh, that's a little heavy. I'm a women's rights activist. <laughs> uh, that was quite a contrast for me um, to deal with that. Uh, Francois, you know, I had to deal with that with him, just those innate kind of responses to things reactions rather um that I couldn't hold him accountable for he's a 10 year old kid um but it was in him you know and I had to anyway that that yeah that was there there was some tough stuff with the beginning of all of that um and the impact that it had on our relationship and all that uh and then having kids man having our biological kids on top of that Sersha. Was born, we came back to Nashville and had a home birth or whatever for real quick, uh, two months, I guess, and then came back to Mombasa and then she lived, she grew up there. Um, We had uh, bombs and grenade attacks and sniper shooting in our front yard (laughs) and, I mean, totally nuts. What was the thing that happened with the Somali pirates that took over the ship? That Captain Phillips, that film with with Tom Hanks, that happened in my front yard. I mean, if if the yard were the ocean, uh, we were on the on the ocean. Literally, walk out the door into the sand, and then straight out was where that thing happened. While we were there. <laughs> oh no way! Okay, I heard about it real real time. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I was like, oh my god, that happened. And then right after that, there was a uh, Al Shabaab cleric that that got executed theoretically by the kenyan government it was not i'm sure it was the american government right in my front yard like right in the same week and i was like oh my god and then the somalis came in and were picking off americans and we were holed up in our house for weeks at a time i had you know rocks and sticks up on the roof that we could throw off to defend the house so my daughter was being raised in that and francois and then we moved to Nairobi. We had a bunch of similar stuff there. It was during the Westgate attacks. I built the coffee shop in the middle of the Westgate mall that the whole attack happened in. I was on my way there. I was five minutes away. And, uh, my friend called and said, it's so my business partner said, Hey, dude, there's guns and bombs going off in the mall. Don't come. I turned around. Um, but we went through all that stuff with my kids over and over and over and over not to mention the political stuff that i was going through and was often in jail or whatever because of some stupid political issue and somebody's trying to frame me for something or whatever um so it was quite an atmosphere to raise a family in i mean incidentally ultimately then i said or both of us were just like all right we need some peace i was turning into an animal (laughs) i was i was raging in the cage um And I was so tired of seeing death and so tired of seeing some of the inhumane aspects of it that I I was like, we need need to heal. We need to focus on our family. We need to focus on raising little vessels of love, and I can't do it here. And again, I don't want to say that that was just because of Kenya or or, or Nairobi specifically or anything. It was because of where I was at, and it was my particular journey, and I needed to go. Um, And we went to Costa Rica for two years, and I pretty much meditated and did a lot of yoga and and ran in the jungle every day for two years (laughs) to kind of get my head back and then it was after that we came to nashville for a year and hung up met back with my family my parents you know so the kids could bond a bit and then we said you know if we're going to live in the states to build up some of my business stuff where could i do that and i thought san Diego's reasonable uh a Cali will work for me and anywhere else I, I couldn't really stomach. But here we are in San Diego. We've been here for three years or so, I guess, in this spot in Ocean Beach. And we dig it. But we're we're getting itchy to, to pop off again, as I mentioned, somewhere else.
0: What was the longest stint you did in prison in Africa and where
1: specifically? Mm. It was um, ongoing stuff where they would come to my house. There was a lot of political um, maneuvering in that they had my passport, um, this is maybe the first I've talked about this on, on, the, on the mic, they had my passport and they, uh, the United States government said, hey, you can't have his passport, it's not his property, it's ours, which was news to me by the way at the time, um, but they were going um, back and forth with that and uh, yeah, it, it I, I just, I had a, um, dude, I'm sorry, I forgot the question. It's all good, dude. I was
0: just asking about the amount of time she, she spent said, in jail. I was it like, oh, was like God. long? Yeah, long the, the periods or is this like they bring you in for a night or two?
1: No, I yeah, can I, I was getting caught up in those memories there. I, I did uh mostly daily stuff. They would come to my house. The idea their purpose was to disrupt my work. I see. Which they, they did dramatically. Um now I, I created patches and hired someone else. That's how I met my wife. I hired her to be the country director because I was going through so much stuff that I couldn't rely on me (laughs) anymore. Um, so I was the political activist and I needed somebody to run the show. Um, now the Rwandan government was minding themselves and how they were conducting it and that they would come to my house in the morning, take me in for interrogation. I'd be there all day long. Sometimes I'd be in a room for eight, nine, 10 hours just by myself, just in a hole. Um, sometimes someone would be in there interrogating me the entire day uh, and then they let me go home at night. So that way they weren't getting in trouble with the United States government. Uh, they were just questioning me at that point. <laughs> now they were taking it to the full extent. Um, they tried to then do that with Ailea. Uh, and, and then I got her out of the country into Uganda. I snuck her over the border in the middle of the night with some friend of mine, I supposed to say. They got her out. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it was – I never had – I don't think i ever had one night in the jail i was always there up until the the they you know it was like nine o'clock and then they'd take me home and then back again the next day so they were they were sort of uh they were playing that game that went on for three years i knew that if i left i would always be seen as guilty of all the bullshit that they said i did and didn't do Incidentally, I did get exonerated by the government publicly in the newspaper for months. It was my paper coming out saying, sorry, wrong guy. Wasn't him. Didn't do it. Um, And, and then I actually went back to work for the government for a minute. Um, what were
0: they accusing you of, just out of curiosity?
1: It was lame. It was just defamation of the country, oh, which was see. ridiculous. I started a project there called Kaza, which means beauty, to tell all the beautiful stories of the country. It was literally so lame that, I, I mean, everybody that was around me was like, well, obviously that's made up. T- we, we've never seen anything like that. Um, you know, and then they tried to take Ilia down for the same thing, for the same charge. But that happened, that charge was from 2007. I didn't meet her until 2008. <laughs> mm. So it, there was a lot of weird stuff that was going on. I was like, whoa, we're, we're in crazy town now. I need, I need to get her out and I need to... And I uh, I met with the United States ambassador. The first one that was there did not care <laughs> about my situation at all. So I say the second one, Stuart Symington. Hat tip to that dude. He saved my ass. He literally got he uh, extradited me out of the country. He took me to the airport, got me out. Because that was where it was at. Like your it's dire. Like you have. Uh, some... Yeah. That, they they wanted to put me. They uh, I was looking at a court date. Sorry, I forgot about that. For seven years in prison for that. For defamation of the country's that would not have character, been, that would have been Yeah, yeah. So I was looking at seven years, and the and then the, the yeah the ambassador said, "All right, enough. We're getting you out." I'm assuming so, no.
0: the reason being like the, the corrupt officials who were involved in some of the like work that you're doing your activism for they were involved, which is why they didn't want you in the country. Like you were there as an activist fighting for the rights of individuals that corrupt officials were involved within the what human trafficking and shit like that. Yes. Okay. I mean, yeah, you don't have to get into details, but that would be my, my assumption, which is why they, they, they fingered you and tried to make your life hell. It's It's a reasonable assumption. It's a, such an interesting theme that just is in every single country. I mean, I had Rusty Labouchang on who was in prison in Zimbabwe for 10 years um, because someone just said he murdered somebody. There was no body. There was no evidence, but they didn't like him. They didn't want him doing what he was doing. So they put him in prison for 10 years. He did find enlightenment, which is pretty interesting. Um, And at the same time, because I can relate to something you alluded to earlier, there is a certain addictive nature to us liking that environment like i find myself when i go to thailand like i love thailand but thailand is the easiest country in the world to be in and it doesn't give me that same jolt that same like heroin hit of just like oh my god this is full (laughs) throttle you know like let's do this like and yeah it's addictive and you seek it out and you find i haven't found myself in that situation that you found yourself in for that extended amount of time I've had little run ins here and there, but like that would really, I think, affect me psychologically as it seems like
1: it has you. And sure. you're doing all this stuff now with the
0: ayahuasca ceremonies and things.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, even being here in the States, with all the cray craze is popping off here with, the, with the, all the racial tensions. stuff. You know, a lot of my following came from when I was writing about Ferguson when that was going off. And I was. Living in Africa during that time, but I was back here when it hit like I just happened to be in the States when Ferguson popped off Like what the hell? And so I was writing about that I went back into the I wrote like six articles that got pretty heavy rotation back then I read them just recently and I was like, I I, it's the same article I just publish it again if I want (laughs) it's the the same exact thing that was going on back then And I can look back at my stuff that I was doing when I was 18 19 years old, you know 20 some years ago same exact conversation um so that's one thing. But it, then being here in the midst of the pandemic and the you know all the COVID crazy and and weird lockdown stuff and everything else, it's like oh no, no, this feels a little bit more like my style. <laughs> like I just started. To, I was tuning into that. Like wow, I that dynamic that you're mentioning. Yeah, I craved it. I and and that was part of what was hard for me coming back to the states. Obviously, it was like where's my adrenaline rush for the day? You know, wh- why is everybody asleep? What the hell's going on? Um, where can I find some action around here with some purpose around it, you know? Um, and that was, yeah, that was super tough. Um, with the stuff that's going on now, it's, it's felt much more like, it's like, well, I've been on lockdown plenty of times. I've been on, I've been in situations where I had to get groceries for a couple of weeks knowing that I might not be able to get back into the grocery store for a month, you know, in Mombasa and stuff like that. Um. And you know, most of the time we didn't have power, we didn't have electricity, we didn't have you know, water half the time, things like that in those scenarios. So, here it's it's pretty tame comparatively, but um, yeah, it's addictive for sure. And that was what I really had to face when I was in uh, in Costa Rica, it, like the land of like you know, pura vida pure <laughs> life, and pure life, and like the whole like everything was literally the other side of the stick, <laughs> um, and that was tough at first, um, but I think it was good for me to swing the pendulum all the way over. And now what I've been doing is trying to find sort of that balance between, you know, uh, silent, you know, contemplative yogi and and the warrior that I've always been and then trying to be kind of that, that Zen warrior in the middle maybe. Um, yeah. One
0: question I'm curious, I'd love to hear your opinion on with you spending so much time in Africa – And getting American news in Africa and then coming back and being here for the last three years, what's your relationship to American media and how has it affected you? And do you think it's even a really good source of information since you have that kind of contrast of being an international expat and getting different types of what CNN and BBC and – I mean they, they broadcast completely different information I find around the world than we get here. So my question to you is what do you think about it now that you're in the states with I personally think you know the a fear-mongering media that has Americans scared of the whole world. Yeah. And basically like what's your opinion?
1: Well, in terms of the American media, I've been addressing that one head on for 20 some years. Um and it's it's no different today than it was other than the fact that today maybe it's turned up to 11 if you want to go spinal tap on it. Uh but it was it, it's a very Um, well, I I guess just just to be practical about it. I have resources that I get my news from I also want to preface that with recognizing that I I allow myself about five ten minutes of news a day Tops sometimes not even that I, I it's I Always want to be in tune with what's going on. I do not however want to spend much time being influenced by the the negativity of all of that I When it comes to media, there's a film called The Century of Ego. If you can make it through all four hours of grainy video from an old BBC thing, um, it will tell you everything you need to know about what's happening in the world. Uh, I think it's one of the most important pieces of film ever made. And it's all about Edward Bernays, who created propaganda. Um, He was Freud's nephew. Uh, And then Anna Freud, his daughter, worked with him. And then um, Anna Freud and... uh, and 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 this guy bernays edward bernays those two and another guy named dichter those three pretty much orchestrated how we operate media and how we operate propaganda and how we it was used to to program the third reich for everything that hitler did it's the same mix he read edward bernays book (laughs) so i look at that and i think that is the machine that is literally controlling society, period. That's the mechanism in which they're controlled. That and between that and capitalism, that's how we work. Uh, I could get into a big dissertation on that, but ultimately that's the deal. So I take it into consideration as I'm taking in that information that I know that 60% of it's propaganda. You know, there may be a, a thread in there and I have to then compare it to others. I do have a few channels like Democracy Now that I've, I've been listening to for a long time um there's the intercept there's a few other things like Jeremy Cahill, those guys um and I have a very well curated twitter feed of activists that are on the ground citizen journalists guerrilla journalists things like that that I know many of them personally or at least have been touched by their work um and I followed that to get what to get the tips that I need for what's going on and otherwise uh, I'm pretty good about blocking out the rest of it, and I'm not watching like mainstream news anywhere. Every now and then, you know, if West is on MSNBC or something, I watch that just to see like what's he saying there. <laughs> um, but otherwise, it's it's pretty much uh, uh, just my own kind of curated feed um, through Twitter mostly.
0: It's a great way to gather information. Um, when at what point? Because you also are, not, are an entrepreneur. What what point did you know your activism? meet capitalism and you started to cultivate a philosophy if you will to start helping brands build their identity and
1: do things in an ethical way thanks that's my that's my big note there thanks for getting me in there i i I feel like that's been my thing like this is part of the value that i want to bring to the world is the perspective i have on that um i just Describe to you a lot of on-the-ground kind of work that I've done um, Or you know at least some highlights uh, I Also though view most of that work as me addressing symptoms Not the core issue and you know and I needed to go through what I did to understand that so everything belongs That's my second point of faith there. <laughs> um, I, I went um, for instance if I want to stop human trafficking I can stop. I, I can do sting operations once a day, <laughs> forever, uh, to to take them down one by one, and then another one's there the next day. You know, it's like whack a mole. Um, that's that's symptom fighting. That's putting out fires. Um, I am. I, I look at humanitarianism as you know, people, politics, and philosophy. I have this in an ebook that I wrote. By the way, it's a free ebook on my website uh, called Natural Born Philanthropist. If you're interested, um, but the the people part, it, it's like you're you're there. Your Mother Teresa, you're there to soothe the pain and 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 and, and say, look, I'm going to be Mother Teresa. I'm going to be Jesus to this person. I'm going to I'm going to soothe the pain. Um, they're not stopping any problems. Mother Teresa was not breaking down any systems or creating systemic change like we talk about now or any of that other stuff. It wasn't changing the way we think necessarily either. Um, that's people Then that's the humanitarian. Then you have politics and that is the activist That's the person that's trying to take down um, And that's trying to change systems That's saying we got to change this system. It's broken politically business-wise, whatever um, and then you have the 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 philosopher and that's the person that's addressing the way we see the world and If we change the way we see the world, I think then the symptoms start to dissipate on their own and um, if I can help someone to really have a real reverence, and I mean that with reverence, if not just an understanding or an, an acknowledgement or whatever, but a reverence for our innate interconnectedness to all things, it becomes really difficult to look at something like the, the, the Amazon burning or the way we eat you know, and then what we do with animal, animal agriculture and human trafficking and things. Those things just simply don't belong in an environment where everyone understands and reveres our interconnectedness. So I've come off the front lines of activism, doing the people stuff or the or the politics, act, you know, system change or whatever. Those things are vital. All three of the things I just noted, people, politics, philosophy, that, that we need all of them. <laughs> There's not an either or. Uh, I've just figured out where I've landed now on the philosophy side. I want to change the way people think. And I'll, I'll end that with where I'm at now vocationally. I, I, I'm with a... I've been in the space industry for, for the last couple of years. I'm with Space for Humanity now. The name says a lot, I think. <laughs> uh, and, and we're opening up access to space for all of humanity. Now, what that means is that we have more people, especially leaders of organizations like nonprofits and things. That's who we're focusing on sending. Um, but we, they get to go out and experience the overview effect of looking back at the Earth from space and experiencing the cognitive shift That that helps you to understand that we are part of this interconnected Gaia, you know And it's not just people standing on a rock hurling through space at sixteen thousand four hundred miles an hour that's happening But we are also part of this organism. Um, and and I Man having the opportunity now to work with space of humanity and and there are a few others There's a couple that are coming up now that are about to be Um that are about to go public that are some big hitters um I've been able to hang out with my heroes, like Frank White, who wrote the Overview Effect. Uh, there's a there's a 20 minute film called Overview. I highly recommend that. That's about his his work. And there's an extended 90 minute version called Planetary that moved me. My podcast soundtrack is the same soundtrack, same guys. I I asked them and they were nice enough to hook me up. They're called Human Suits. Um, so they. Frank, I reached out to five years ago, I emailed him on Harvard website and said, I just appreciate your work. Thank you so much for giving me language to use about the overview effect and all that. And he called me back and long story short, for five years now, I've been his guy, you know, his strategist and building his projects. I'm now building the human space program for him. That's massive. And it's all the OGs, all all the guys we know, the big names we know, they're involved uh, in the space and philosophy discussion. Can you just really clarify uh, the
0: space? you know, like I'm thinking like outer space when you keep using the term. So is that yeah. what you're referring to?
1: Yeah. Sorry. Um, it is space as in like for space for humanity. Like I, I do the, I produce like the, the launches for space as SpaceX and NASA that, you know, we just did for the demo one launch, uh, or sorry, demo two launch. Now we have the crew one launch coming up. We just did the Mars launch. Um, we do those big parties. Like we had Bill Nye, freaking Bill Nye. I've been like a huge fan since I was, you know, a kid probably. Um, and I had him on the mic the other day, so it was really cool. But we we do those launches to bring all these people in. I'm talking to Jason Silva for the next one, um, and and trying to bring Jane Goodall into the discussion, and all these other people that are talking about how about, about our relationship with the planet. Um, and, and and as we go out, my my overarching kind of theme, and I and I spoke to you offline about this new project I've got called the Overview Sessions, which is sort of encapsulating all this in a podcast and video kind of format. Um, the tagline that I have for that is that our future in space depends on who we resolve to be on Earth today. And that's why I'm in the space industry, because I'm looking – like, these are futurists. All these people are designing our future. They're saying this is what we're going to take forward. This is what we're going to leave behind in terms of economics. And uh, I, I'm, I wrote the inclusivity statement and, and the um, uh, our solidarity statement with the, the uh, racial movement t- today – I did that with through their platform, and I know that I reached more people in that one letter that I put up there in that statement of solidarity than I've probably ever done in my own solo career, uh, just from that one thing. Other organizations in the space community have now adopted that same statement. I created an inclusion council there to ensure an, an inclusive future for us all as we move into space. And now other organizations are coming along. Uh, I could name off a bunch that you'd know, but they're now coming in and saying, look, we're we are now adopting the Inclusion Council and we're going to have that at our organization, too. I mean, I, I literally got choked up when I heard that. I was like, oh, my God, that, I've never made that big of an impact. I just got chills. Um, but it's like all these organizations that are designing our future and they're saying we're going to have an Inclusion Council and they're using the model that I built. So that's an that's an example of me addressing how we see the world. Such that we have fewer problems to correct on the other side, Uh, you know in terms of the symptoms that would come out of that I want the symptoms of my work to be love and kindness and, and so on. So that's beautiful,
0: man So yeah, it seems like the core issue is how humans perceive the world our life situation on this planet and as you move forward You're trying to help people take steps to include more love into their perception of the world. Is that what I'm understanding?
1: For sure. I have a little formula there too. (laughs) Surprising. Uh, but there's a, like, I I think if you, as an activist, first of all, hold fast to your principles and be very flexible on your tactics. Otherwise you don't get a seat at the table. Um, I could go off on that one, but ultimately I, I, my formula typically for looking at these things say, okay, I want to change this thing that's happening. I want to change, you know, human trafficking or or pollution of the sea or whatever it is. Like, okay, well, if you want to do that, here's how you get there understand that We have experiences in our life. Those experiences give us a perspective a way of seeing the world a, a world view um, Some of those experiences are just thrust upon us. We have nothing to do with our you know, who our parents are and things like that um, There's a more cosmic discussion about that But <laughs> in, in theory here we don't we don't have any, you know, we we grow up in a certain place We come out of a certain town, you know those kind of things We didn't have control over that and then we have the things that we do like going to Africa and going to live somewhere else and to live more alive and whatever and then those are things that we influence ourselves with but that forms our perspective now from our perspective now that we have the root i know that then from that is going to come my prior or my my values the thing that i value is, is going to be determined by my worldview and then from that i'm going to determine my priorities what what's most important out of those values from that you will see my behavior and the way that i act in the world the way that i respond. Emotionally, or, 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 I mean, I always want to respond intentionally rather than react emotionally. But that's going to come out that way. Um, then, from that behavior, I'm contributing to a larger culture uh, in society, and that culture is ultimately that becomes humanity. So, if, if I'm looking at like what's going on on the end of well, this symptom here of a human trafficker, I have to look back and say, at some point, that person typically a white man, um, decided that it was reasonable to trade another human as a commodity. I need to address the way he sees the world rather than trying to stop him at the doorstep of his brothel (laughs) or whatever. Right. So that's really my formula for everything moving forward. And again, you can see I'm in the philosopher category of my people, politics and philosophy. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's a, uh, just a way of looking at things and recognizing that anytime I'm trying to change a symptom out here, I have to go back and think about how did the, how did this come to be? How did we get here? How Why are we burning the Amazon forest? And then track it all the way back to the people that are making those decisions and the perspective that they have. A lot of times in a political situation, I'll skip all the stuff that's going on in the streets and go straight to the one politician in charge and create a relationship. By the way, the best way to win a war or of any or a battle of any kind is certainly not to go to war. Sun Tzu says you've already lost if you've done that. Um, in my opinion, and this is where I'm at as a human, as an activist, the most effective way to change something as an activist is infiltration. To infiltrate into something to become part of the fabric of it and influence it from within like that if you can and it is a hell of a ride to do that and it requires a lot of resolve and patience and passion and so on but I've thrust myself into many things like the media and so on because I know that that's the controlling mechanism and if I can influence uh, the way people see in, the, in that world I know I can have a lot of uh, positive impact. So it sounds like the
0: infiltration then leads to implementation by the individuals in which you're trying to help change yeah. their perspective. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. I hope so. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and if you can help enough people, teach them this philosophy that you just described, then they can then in turn infiltrate other circles of people, planting the same seeds that hopefully change their perspective, and you get a domino effect in a sense. Is that how you're? Is that how
1: you're approaching this big change and shift? <laughs> Uh, for sure. And I, I'm, uh, yeah, it's good that you pointed that out. I'm very much a long haul thinker. I'm not, <laughs> I have a pretty loose relationship with time. I've studied quantum physics. <laughs> and you come out the other side of that and you're like, oh, <laughs> that's not really happening like we thought it was. Um, I live my life in moments, not minutes. Um, so I'm, I'm just, I'm always looking at it and saying, okay, I'm going to have a lot of moments here, but otherwise I'm just investing in things that May or may not even come into fruition in my lifetime. That's not the point. I'm just constantly investing in this, um, notion that we have to change the way we see the world. If we, if we really want to change anything, just attacking things and trying to force change at this moment where I realized I was fighting for peace. Oh, the irony, um, and, and, and my journey. And then I thought, well, I don't want to do that. That seems ridiculous. Um, and, and sort of dichotomous. Um, so I, I'm very much a long haul thinker. Like i I'll, I'm very happy to invest in something now that might have an effect in five years or 10 years or a hundred years, or whatever it is. Um, yeah, so that's a, uh, and that's a way of going about things. I think if you're going to be an activist, again, you have to be, you know, hold fast to your principles and whatever, but be flexible with your tactics, um, and be willing to be in it for the long haul. If you're looking for quick wins, you're in the wrong game. Mm. What's your relationship to your ego? Hmm. I mean, I feel comfortable in saying that it's healthy, but I—I I have that's as a result of a lot of work, man. Um, I believe that my ego belongs, also, uh, everything does, and that it's there to work on me when I need it, and I use it very much as an ally now, uh, that rather than my deterrent or my uh, that felt like an anchor many times before that just was constantly pulling me back out of the way of, that I wanted to live, the human that I wanted to be, the way that I wanted to respond um, but now I look at it as this thing that kind of, this, this other entity that comes up in the room, you know, in my life uh, that I say, yes, you belong what do you have to teach me today I'm, I'm here to listen, but you're not my master. I totally agree and I find
0: I've come to a similar conclusion, I'm, I'm trying to use my ego as a motivator because I think it is a huge motivator to light like, that fire under my ass and, and get me to do positive things and where it used to get me to do more negative things and self-destructive things, I think, as a younger man. I'd like to talk a little bit about the plant medicine that you've recently been experimenting with, with the ayahuasca, because I know it was your first one and I've had other guests on who have talked about it. What was your experience like? I know you've done plant medicines, but like ayahuasca, you just did recently. What was that like for you?
1: Well, I had said no to ayahuasca, I I mean, every time and maybe there was, I'd say 50 to 100 times over the last 10 years where it's been offered or something came up. um, And I just, I'm very comfortable with plant medicines. Uh, We talked about a little offline, I feel very comfortable in that space, and very comfortable going into a journey. I'm very good at full surrender, (laughs) full throttle surrender, just all the way in. Take me away, baby. Um, and I, that, that also has an effect on how, like when someone says, Hey, we're going to go do it, you know, psilocybin journey this weekend. Do you want to go whatever I can very quickly? And I have another theory on this called seven breaths theory that's based in Bushido, but about making a decision within seven breaths. Um, any good samurai should be able to do that is what they say. Uh, it, it doesn't matter how serious. So I, I'm very in tune with that, but when a plant medicine thing comes into my mind, I can very quickly, it doesn't even take seven breaths. I feel that intuition of yes or no. And I'm very, very comfortable in that every time. just answer, I know it, that's it. Um, This ayahuasca journey came up in the midst of some heavy stuff in my life. And um, I said yes, partly because of where it was. I probably shouldn't say that on the air actually, it was in the States. I want to protect the place that I was because it was one of the most magical, amazing experiences of my life. And it had everything to do with the setting and the shaman that I worked with and the other 16 people in the room and the seven facilitators and everything that was created in this communal suffering (laughs) that we went through. um, That was just pure magic. I, when I got the, you know, the, the text from my friend, First of all, he's my journey mate. We've been through a lot. I understand he's using his intuition, and he knows my feelings about ayahuasca. For him to ask me, I said, okay, that I, I feel the weight of that. I'm going to give attention to that in that way. I said yes within about two breaths. I made the plans. I traveled in the time of COVID. <laughs> it was my first flight <laughs> during that. Um, and I had this experience. that I, I, I told him... I said, man, I feel like the vine dragged all of us into this suffering hole together um, uh, to invite us into true surrender and to feel then the fruits and the beauty and the love that comes from that surrender through all this nasty stuff. And I mean, my experience was pretty full on ayahuasca (laughs) uh, from things I've watched and read about it um all the snakes and all the the faces coming out of faces and all the stuff in my just in my face I'm in the freaking porta john coming out both ends <laughs> which they say is a gift from mama ayahuasca by the way um but I'm in there you know every time my eyes are closed which is most of the time I'm like you know I'm in full purge <laughs> um you know, and I'm seeing the snakes all throughout my vision and feeling them all throughout my body. I can feel them on my skin, everywhere. I the, like the whole toilet thing was full of snakes in my mind. and But it was as real as I'm looking at you right now. And, you know, to go through that, oh, first of all, I was grateful for all my 100,000 other plant journeys before that that primed me for that kind of experience because <laughs> I felt comfortable in it. I wasn't freaked out. But I, I had that moment of sitting there and saying, you belong. That snake in my face that's snapping at me belongs. That, you know, my partner and her face, you know, exploding into pieces and like like that belongs somehow. Like all this stuff that I felt in me that, that felt so antithetical to peace and love and all the things that I love. I had to sit there with that and say that belongs. The 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 situation in the room, there was one other shaman kind of facilitator that was a bit he had the coyote energy trickster um and I I called him coyote uh, while I was there which he apparently understood um I spoke in Lakota a lot while I was there too which was really beautiful for me most people don't (laughs) where am I going to do that right (laughs) um so that was really cool but uh he was up in my face and all, he was like the nasty voodoo guy in my face um, and, and like touching and all the stuff that made me feel very uncomfortable, like it didn't belong. And every time I got into that situation with him, I just leaned in. and I said, do your thing. I'm here. Surrender. Full surrender. And he really pushed me. Suffice it to say, at the end of that whole my uh, two and a half, three days or whatever there, I went up to him afterwards and I said, thank you for working on me. Uh, you, you were one of the most significant people for my experience here because he was the one I despised the most, <laughs> wow. uh, but it was the one, like he, he played such a role. I don't even know his name. I called him Coyote, but, um, <laughs> Coyote, he was, uh, the, the Ixtote or whatever. I think that's the, the, lo, the Coda name, but he, um, he, <sighs> Yeah, I had all these different experiences that was a very much a everything belongs kind of journey for me to say, OK, this thing feels out of place. I don't like that person in my journey here. And then I had to surrender and say that belongs to and then to understand why and what it was doing in me. So, man, it was um, it was a surrender experiment for sure. And it was communal in a way that I really, really loved. Everybody's journey had was connected to mine and i'm sure vice versa um someone's hurling you know in the corner at a moment in my journey and then it tunes me into something you know and or or shakes me out of something or whatever it is it was all connected and i really really loved that so for me the ayahuasca experience was literally at least 50 percent set and setting Mm -hmm. and and the rest was mama mama (laughs) ayah
0: and now standing where you stand today the effects have been what like, are they still with you? Or are they just? Are you still internalizing everything? Are you changed now forever? I mean, obviously yes. you probably are to a certain extent.
1: Yes, I'm, pull, I'm pulling out my, my little journal here, my, my little pocket journal that has all my bits of wisdom from life in it. Um, man, I, I went through some stuff that is probably interesting too for me to talk about. I'm, I'm, I know we're short on time. I won't go into that, but the the, the stuff that I've dealt with that most people wouldn't think I've been dealing with. Uh, And a lot of the self-love stuff and the, one of my journey statements This is actually in Mexico on boomers and DMT, but I I came out of that saying, I, I came here to be, don't forget that Jared, (laughs) you came here to be and, and to be all that I came here to be, to be that expression of the divine, you know, that's that came here to be through me. And if I stifle that through my resistance or my self-loathing or my fear or whatever, I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) Like, I came here to be. So that was one thing that that came out of some recent journeys. But then that furthered a bit in my ayahuasca journey to remind me that um, the divine is trying to express itself through my existence. And the more I release and the more I surrender the more I can receive and the more I can give out. And and it's just this reciprocal thing that I had blocked for a while because of lack of attention to self-love, lack of uh, feeling of worthiness, of receiving love, that thing I had committed to, to saying, I don't need love, damn it. (laughs) Um, You know, I don't want to need anything. I'm a fucking soldier. (laughs) Um, So Mama Ayahuasca... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Deep pantsed me on that one and said yes, you do brother and and soak it in and the more you have The more you can give and as it's overflowing out of you You can give more of it to the world and that That's working in me still for sure
0: It's beautiful, man I mean, thank you so much for taking the time. I would love to go on. I know we are We are short on time. Let's get you back on the podcast before we go Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about where they can find you and what they should be You know looking for in the near future Thank you brother.
1: Um I, yeah, jaredangaza.com, uh, A-N-G-A-Z-A. Uh, you can find me there. And um, my podcast is Noetic with Jared Angaza. I've been a bit dormant. It's been a labor of love for a long time. I've taken some time off to, to work in the space community with Space Humanity and so on. But that I'm firing back up, <laughs> Noetic, here in the next month. I'm excited about that, and I've got a lot of new material when I want to get out on there as well. So that's uh, noeticpodcast.com and uh, jaredangaza.com, and then my main work, where you find me most days, is at spaceforhumanity.org, and I'm loving what I'm doing there. I'd love it if you check out the the statement of solidarity and our inclusion council, and see if that's inspiring. Uh, and we have a new uh, podcast video series called Overview Sessions coming out there that I'm doing, a kind of I told Frank White, I said, I'm going to make you a playground for, to play in. <laughs> and I've been working on that for a few months, and that's just launching next week. So I'm super stoked about that. That's the main places you can find me. Well, thank you, Jared.
0: We appreciate you, love you, and wish you all the best.
1: Thanks so much. I
0: appreciate it. Awesome, Jared. Thank you so much for your time. What a cool conversation. I appreciate you. I respect you for what you've accomplished. I respect you for what you're continually striving to leave behind as we blaze toward the future of the unknown. Your work is meaningful. Your work is worthwhile. Hats off to you, my friend. I think what you are doing is absolutely beautiful. And for all you listeners out there, please give this episode a share to somebody you know needs to hear it or wants to hear it or could benefit from hearing it. That would mean the world to Jared and I. Hitting that subscribe button, leaving a comment, rating it five stars. And if you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop and pick up a t-shirt or head over to patreon.com backslash misfitsandrejects and leave a monthly donation. All is appreciated. Nothing is expected. I think you all are so very beautiful. I appreciate you coming week in and week out. See you in Monday's episode, 9 a.m. as usual. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your week. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in it fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.